Well, we've all heard this question before, and maybe you even asked it yourself. What's in it for me? Typically, we ask this question when when something feels inconvenient or when we're wanting to feel like something is, is worth our valuable time and effort. We might call this the favor filter. When someone asks you a favor, you might be tempted to run it through that filter, through that question, what's in it for me? And the heart behind this question is, is what's in it for us to gain? And of course, this question comes at much higher stakes than whether or not you'll fulfill that favor for someone. Because this was the very question that the false teachers in Ephesus were asking. They didn't care whether they were working directly against the authoritative words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they certainly didn't care if they were bringing others along with them. The only thing they cared about, the only thing on their minds was their own personal gain. What's in it for me? I hope that we see the true danger that lurks behind this question. It's not a neutral question, and it's not just a selfish question. It is a godless question. And I say that because we deceive ourselves into being our own God, and the true God is removed from the picture altogether. And this brings me to the title of this morning's sermon, The Danger of Godless Gain. The Danger of Godless Gain. If you're able, please stand with me as I read what the Lord has for us this morning in 1 Timothy 6. And while I'm reading, I want us to focus on how this desire for personal gain comes about and why it is so dangerous. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here's how we might sum up the truth of this passage in a sentence. 
Live for your own gain, and you will lose everything. Live for your own gain, and you will lose everything. This kind of godless gain directly opposes the living God. And it opposes him in two ways. In what he says to his people and in what he desires for his people. So point number one in verses two through five, godless gain opposes God's word. Godless gain opposes God's word. And Paul begins our passage with those familiar words, teach and urge these things. We've seen these words before, that that these things, uh, Paul's instructions uh, for the church are urgent and they must be followed. And this command comes with a promise. If we remember back to what Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so what this means is what defines a godly servant of the Lord Jesus is that they are devoted to putting his words, not theirs, before the church. And from the beginning to the end of this letter, this is one of Paul's greatest concerns for the church, that godly doctrine prevails over godless doctrine. He began the letter with this warning in chapter 1, verse 3, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And now he ends the letter by warning Timothy of these same godless teachers in chapter 6, verse 3, of those who are teaching a different doctrine. Now, what does Paul mean by different doctrine? Is he simply saying, hmm, yeah, that's that's a little different than I would understand it? Or, yeah, that doctrine has has a different flavor to it? I think this would fall far short of what Paul means here. And another one of Paul's letters can help us understand what he's saying. In Galatians 1, Paul rebukes them for turning to a different gospel. And then he quickly explains, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so it's not just that it's different doctrine. Paul's communicating this is distorted doctrine. And it's that which opposes God's word, which opposes the true gospel. And he's not not saying this is accidental opposition. It's it's intentional opposition. 1 Timothy 6 is crystal clear. There is no other doctrine for the church. Because ultimately, these aren't just words from Paul's mouth. They're words from the very mouth of Christ. As we saw in verse 3, as we read the passage, we're talking about the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are his words, and so we better listen up. Only his words are sound, which also means healthy. And so if the word of Christ is healthy, we can be sure that any teaching that opposes his word is diseased. And it will infect your mind and your very life. 
And this is what was happening to these godless teachers in Ephesus. No longer were they concerned about the teaching that accords with godliness, but only the teaching that accorded with their own gain. The cost of godliness was not worth what they thought they could gain. What's in it for me? And they were in it to gain a hearing for themselves. And in doing so, they were found opposing God's word. In this, they were deceived into thinking that they were the ones who knew better than Christ himself. And what is Paul's assessment of this assumption? They are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. May this never describe us. Departing from his word because we think we know better than him. That is not the path to being filled with humility but to being filled with pride. We might picture a balloon or a tire just being pumped up with pride. But an even better image is a puffer fish. At first glance, this fish may look harmless, just swimming around like any other fish. But when this fish is threatened, it puffs up, and its true danger is revealed. It's armed with poisonous spikes. And that's what godless teachers are like. They are dangerous. And when their own gain is threatened, their poisonous character is revealed. And this should cause us to examine our own character as we read these words. To ask, what comes out of me when I don't get what I want? How do I respond when others don't show me the respect that I think I deserve? Or where am I seeking my own gain? Ask your spouse or a trusted friend these questions about yourself. They will likely see things in you that that you are blind to. And with the Lord's help, the character traits that Paul lists here in chapter 6 should help us to look even closer at our own hearts. And if you look closely at this list in 1 Timothy 6, it should remind you of another list in 1 Timothy. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 3? Well, there we saw the qualifications for godly character. And here we see the qualifications for godless character. We could call this Paul's list of anti-qualifications. Because many of these character traits are the exact opposite of 1 Timothy 3. To list just a few from that chapter, godly leaders are sober-minded, self-controlled, able to teach, not quarrelsome, not greedy for dishonest gain. And rather than being sober-minded and self-controlled, these godless leaders in 1 Timothy 6 have an unhealthy craving for controversy They have departed from the healthy words of Christ and have become sick with the desire for their own gain. Rather than being able to teach, Paul says, they understand nothing, blinded by their own dangerous pride. And they are the very definition of quarrelsome, 
craving quarrels, producing envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. And above all, they are living, breathing examples of being greedy for dishonest gain. In chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Does this sound like the kind of leader that you would want to follow? As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.14, these are the kinds of teachers who ruin their hearers. But interestingly, a few verses later in 2 Timothy, we see that they can still have the appearance of godliness. But Paul wants us to rest assured that this charade is all in their imagination. And the Lord isn't mocked by the appearance of of godliness, because he sees right to the heart. And as verse 5 shows us, godless gain leads to the greatest loss imaginable, being depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And if you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, this is where opposing God's word will lead you. Any gain that you achieve will ultimately be hopeless because it is godless. And as we heard in our scripture reading from Philippians 3, Paul himself knew the danger of godless gain from his own life before he had trusted in Christ. In the eyes of the world, Paul, we could say, had it all. But in reality, he had nothing because he didn't have Christ. Listen again to Paul's reflections on true gain after he had come to trust in Christ. Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Live for your own gain and you will lose everything. But there is great hope for you this morning. Lose everything for the sake of Christ and you will gain everything the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, as Paul said. And this is the greatest gain that you could possibly imagine. Salvation from your sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this morning, the Lord is calling you to listen to his word. And you can trust his word completely. Because unlike these imposters in 1 Timothy 6, the Lord Jesus doesn't just have the appearance of godliness. He is godliness in the flesh. He is the perfect man who lived a sinless life and went to the cross in the place of sinners. And on that cross, Jesus lost everything. He willingly gave up his own life so that you might gain everything through his death on your behalf. 
And as if that wasn't enough, three days later, he rose from the dead, proclaiming victory over your sin. And if you would turn from your sin this morning and trust in him by faith, you, just like the Apostle Paul, who was once an enemy of Christ, can come to know him and the power of his resurrection. No longer will you be deprived of his truth, but you will be delighted in his truth. And you will come to realize that living for your own gain was nothing but loss. And the Christians in this room know this to be true. That there's nothing that we have not first received from Christ. And in him, we have received everything. And unlike this godless gain that opposes God's word, We are called to godly gain that submits to and follows his word. And although this is far from easy, there is nothing more rewarding than listening to what God says. Which also means there is nothing more dangerous than rejecting what he says. And this is where living for your own gain will lead Because godless gain doesn't just oppose what God says, it also opposes what God desires. So point number one, godless gain opposes God's word. Point number two, in verses six through 10, godless gain opposes God's will. Godless gain opposes God's will. And this is where we find the hinge of this passage where the godless pursuit of gain is flipped over on its head. Because you may have noticed that Paul does a little play on words with the word gain. Look with me again at the end of verse 5 and into verse 6. They are those who are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, there's something far better than living for your own gain. Living for the Lord with a heart that is content in Him. And if you are content, you won't only receive gain, Paul says, you will receive great gain. And this is God's will for His people, that we would trust Him and not ourselves to satisfy us and to meet all of our needs. And if this is the posture of our hearts, then anything else we receive is a gracious gift from his hand. Godless gain, on the other hand, is driven not by contentment, but by craving more. More recognition from others. More money. More stuff. This is why the Lord gave us chapter 6, verse 7, to put us in our rightful place. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And on this theme of contentment, Paul was likely drawing from the wisdom of the Old Testament. Like Proverbs 15, verse 16, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Or Job 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
What this means is that even if we don't have a penny to our name in this life, but we have the Lord, we have everything. Because the fear of the Lord, the godly pursuit of him, that's what's going to last forever, not our possessions. As John Stott has wisely said, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. Don't you want to set your hope on the stuff of eternity? And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, how tempting is it for us, even as believers, to set our hope on wealth and possessions, on financial gain? This is why Paul exhorts us a few verses later in 1 Timothy 6 to set our hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Beloved, the promises of riches are uncertain, but the Lord's promises are certain. And setting your hope on riches will fail you, but the Lord will never fail you. But let's be honest with ourselves. Do we really believe that he richly provides us with everything to enjoy? That he's not stingy? Hasn't this been the problem from the very beginning? God said, surely you may eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the problem is not with God. He is abundantly generous and good to us, richly providing for all of our needs. No, the problem is with us. That we focus on that one thing that he hasn't given us. We say, see, he's holding back from me. Why should I trust him? And if we allow ourselves to be driven by our own gain, we will never be satisfied. But as this passage shows us, if we are driven by contentment with the Lord's help, setting aside our own gain, this will bring lasting satisfaction. And the posture of true contentment is found in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How often is this the outlook of our lives? If you're like me, it's easier to think only about what you want rather than what you need. And I think we could learn a lesson on contentment from Jacob. Listen to his words from Genesis 28. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I should go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, then the Lord shall be my God. What is Jacob most concerned about? that the Lord be with him. That is our greatest need. Any other need after this is secondary. And beloved, he has promised that he will never leave or forsake us. 
And so when it comes to this battle for contentment that rages within our own hearts, this is the Lord's will for us, that we would desire Him above everything else. And we must see that the desire for godless gain doesn't just oppose His word, it opposes His will. And that's where we turn in in verse 9. Look with me there. After he speaks about contentment, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What he's saying is these desires, they can't be God's desires. Allow me to use an illustration from The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Bilbo and the clan of dwarves have finally made it to Mount Erebor. And there they meet a dreadful foe, the evil dragon, Smaug. And Smaug vigilantly guards his vast treasure that he has stored up underneath the mountain. And over time, he has become sick with his own greed over this this treasure that he has hoarded. What's come to be known as dragon sickness. The treasure itself now possesses Smaug's powerful greed, transferring it to anyone who would find it. And this happens to one of the main heroes in the story, Thorin Oakenshield. The moment he lays eyes on this treasure, he is instantly infected with the dragon's greed. Now, just as a disclaimer, I'm not sure if this is in the book. Payton, I know you've read it. Maybe others have read the book. I just watched the movies. Okay, but in the movie, his greed is revealed in this tragic line. This gold is ours, and ours alone. With my life, I will not part with a single coin, not one piece of it. The treasure was destroying Thorin. He had fallen into the snare of riches. And he was being quickly consumed by the desire for his own gain. Now, of course, we're not ultimately concerned about the dragon who threatens the characters in The Hobbit. But we are concerned about the dragon who threatens the church of Jesus Christ. And when Paul talks about the danger of falling into a snare in verse 9, what he's really doing is pointing to what, or rather who, lurks behind that snare. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, he called it a snare of the devil. Beloved, the devil himself is the source of godless gain. And of course, not just that, but he is the source of all sinful desires. And he lurks behind these desires, using them as a trap to lure others to their own destruction, just like Smaug did to Thorin. But far more devastating than losing out on the treasure of the dragon is losing out on the treasure of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is the treasure that Satan wants to snatch away and he'll use anything he can to lead us astray, including the temptation of living for our own gain. And what this passage is telling us is is don't think that you can just play around with your own gain. It will only plunge you into destruction. And so here's the call to us this morning. Either stand on the promises of Christ or sink into the lies of the devil. One secures your salvation while the other secures your destruction. And this becomes even more clear as Paul goes into verse 10, expanding on this desire for riches. In verse 10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, just to be clear, Paul is not saying that money itself is evil. Underneath the umbrella of wise stewardship, money is a gift to be used for the glory of God and for the good of others. But what Paul is talking about, the love of money, the ceaseless craving for more of it. Now that is something different. That is nothing but evil. And as he says, this evil root, it doesn't grow from the seed of contentment. It grows from the seed of godless gain, where evil fruit flourishes. And most importantly, as this text shows us, this leads to wandering away from the faith. Do you remember what happened to the seed among thorns in the parable of the soils? It was the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things that entered in and choked out the word. So godless gain will choke out God's desires. As those thorny desires begin to close in, it brings deep pain. As Paul describes being pierced with many pangs. And if you look in verse 10, who is the one that is is doing the piercing? It's themselves. This pain is self-inflicted. It is a willing opposition of God's desires. For us to see that the momentary pleasure of godless gain brings eternal pain. And of course, the most tragic example of this in Scripture is found in Judas Iscariot. Driven by his own gain, Judas inquired of the chief priests, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas thought of nothing beside that question, what's in it for me? And he was even willing to betray the Lord Jesus to hand him over to be crucified for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is a living, breathing example of Jesus' warning in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will love, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And because Judas loved his own gain, he hated Christ. And what could be more godless, more satanic than this? Because as John tells us, it was the devil himself who put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. And by the time he had come to his senses, realizing the evil that he had done, it was too late. Judas was living for his own gain, and he lost everything. And so, beloved, we must take these warnings very seriously and examine ourselves. Where am I at risk of loving my possessions? How often do I find myself craving more money? Or when was the last time I truly rested in contentment? Because the world tells us the more the better. Get as much as you can in this life. We need to believe that just like any desire, this desire is not neutral. And as this passage teaches us, it's more dangerous than we often realize. Because there is nothing more dangerous than to be found opposing God's word and God's will. So let's flip around that question that I introduced at the beginning of the sermon. What's in it for us? Not if we would live for godless gain, but for godly gain. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What's in it for us? Heavenly treasures, untold. Fullness of joy, abounding hope, deep peace, lasting contentment. It's impossible to list them all. As Paul writes elsewhere, we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when you have received endless spiritual blessings from the king, nothing else matters. And beloved, there is no greater gain than this. And in Christ alone, we can have this hope. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And so with his help, may we cling to the treasure of knowing Christ above all else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do remind ourselves, we, we confess that you are our greatest treasure. There is nothing greater than you. Would it be true of our hearts to say, along with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire besides you. Lord, would you plant this deeper in our hearts as a church that, that we would be aware of the danger of godless gain and that we would flourish in the joy of the gain we have received in, in knowing Christ. There is nothing greater for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.